0: Namo Tasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Namo Tasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Namo Tasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama sambhudasa. Homage to the Buddha, the Blessed Noble and Fully Self-Enlightened One. Uh, So, um, uh, the question of feeling and really just looking at how the Buddha uh, dissects the human being in a slightly different way that that we would in the West anyway. Um, If you consider something like Freud, uh, there was the body of course, but then you have this ego which is your conscious self. And underneath that, you've got this sort of id, this uh, animal drives and stuff like that. And then on top of that, you've got the superego, which is all the no-nos from society and your, your daddy figure and all that, and God <laughs> saying you shouldn't do this, shouldn't do that. And the ego's job is to sort of uh, negotiate some sort of <laughs> path through the middle of that to find happiness and happiness. Uh, if it uh, if it's if it's overcome by these idy things, then it gets very neurotic. Uh, and if it's overcome by the superego, it's very neurotic. It's, it gets all sort of guilt complexes and stuff like that. So uh, I mean, it's one way of, of looking at a human being. Um, another way, in some sort of slightly similar way, would be a, you know a, a sort of Christian way that uh, you have within you. This propensity for evil, which is sort of just part and parcel of your human history coming back from Adam, that's your original sin or whatever and uh and you've got this conscious consciousness which has a conscience and you're guided by uh, the teachings of Christ and others, and your effort is to become pure, become holy, and enter heaven, so you've got these various you know ways of seeing a human being. Uh, Freud never thought there would be an end to suffering as such, he just thought there would be a, a decent accommodation. <laughs> Later on he did get more, I think he got more um, deeper when he talked about these two fundamental drives of Thanatos and eros, uh, the drive to, uh, for annihilation, the, um, and the drive for love, which is the drive for life, which is very close to the Buddha's idea about desire. So we have these three desires, the desire for just basic sensual pleasure, but this constant desire to become, to to reappear as a person constantly. Um, and that extends itself into beliefs of eternalism, that, you know, I live forever. And the other side is this constant, is this more subtle drive for annihilation, which manifests as, you know, um, as simple as sitting in a chair a bit fed up and going to sleep just get rid of yourself for a while (laughs) and the worst of course is suicide so that um, these two desires are also in in the Buddhist teachings but he has if you bring to mind that his focus is on how to liberate how to become liberated from suffering that's his focus so all his teaching is about how to become liberated from suffering and uh, when we use the word dukkha, when we're translating the word dukkha as suffering, that really only brings out the heavy side. It's uh, dukkha, mean, means all the dissatisfactions, all the little irritations, going right up to you know severe despair, all that sort of stuff. So it's the whole gamut of human misery, right? From the little things that niggle us right to the end of, of, of horror. And uh, remember that that is caused by a wrong relationship to the world. So the actual uh, cause of suffering is Dukkha Dukkha. So, which means it's the suffering of, of 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 the suffering of life. So in other words, as soon as you're born as a human being, you're given physical pain. You you don't overcome that. Pain stays with you. And you'll always be with people who, who um, want to make your life a misery. <laughs> so, <laughs> you'll never... It's not as though we're working with the world as it presents itself to us. As, For instance, this body. So, uh, you know, my body gives me backache and that's the end of it. That's not the suffering that the Buddha's talking about. He's talking about how I relate to my backache. And if I can find an equanimity with it, an ability to just receive it with a certain kindness... Uh, not to get angry about it, etc., etc., then, in a sense, I've found a ibanic relationship with this pain. So it's the same with with people who uh, get up your nose, you see. So it's it's not that you're trying to change them, you're trying to change your relationship to them. So if we keep in mind that sort of singular focus he has um, on how to uh, get rid of all this suffering and come to a place where... It just doesn 't arise, it just doesn 't arise, so there are two there are two things that have to happen first of all is this insight process where we begin to see the way things really are, and the other part is the hard bit that we that we come across in our meditation, which is the purification of the heart i mean that 's what you sit here with you know your irritations and your fears and your guilt and all that, and that 's all to do with the rubbish that 's been piled up in the heart, which has to Find a way of exhausting itself, and it can only do that within consciousness, otherwise, it stays in the body. And if it gets too turbulent in the body, then it manifests as illness of some sort, you know, psychosomatic illness, which then is a way of it coming into consciousness. Um, I'm always reminded of my mother, she was a very anxious person. Uh, extremely anxious but they've, they've lived on the edge of fear, I think, all her life. And right at the end of, towards the end of her life, something sort of uh, peculiar happened. Um, she uh, she went into uh, some sort of um, uh, mental disorientation caused by the death of a neighbour, whom she was very dependent on for support, emotional support. And uh, when she was taken the hospital, they took her off all her drugs can you imagine that I mean she was taking about <laughs> I don't know half a dozen of them if not a dozen of these different uh, uh, psychological drugs you know to help her with this and uh, with this depression and anxiety and, all. and she went into this paralysis complete paralysis complete paralysis and um, she very slowly came out of it and I came back at that time to tent her and and uh, Something, although she couldn't have have expressed it, I think, but something about going into that state seems to have cleared some deep uh, fear of something in her life. Just being in that, just waking up and being paralysed. I don't know what it was, but I, I never saw such joy coming out of her. I mean, she was a very, she could be a very joyful person, uh, but there was something something more joyful about this joy that came out of her after she slowly recovered from this paralysis, and it seemed to be more deep seated in a in a sort of deeper level of equanimity so i 've always 've always now looked upon anything which comes out of me as an illness with great with great joy because this is, <laughs> this is surely means things are going to get better <laughs> so uh, the, um, that's all part of this uh, the psychology the part of the, the turbulence in our psychology and our psyche which has to be uh, cured and of course we have to make the effort not to pile it back on again you know so that's why this mindfulness in daily life is part and part of the process of our liberation but when it comes to the insight so that's basically this whole teaching about the three characteristics of existence, impermanence not self and, uh, and how we create uh, misery for ourselves. Uh, but then he gives us these two vantage points to explore the human being. And one of them is this cross section, which is known as the five candors, the five heaps, the aggregates, uh, aggregates sometimes they call them. And the other one is uh, the human being in motion, the dependent origination. Okay, so he gives a cross section. Now, in that cross section, What he's trying to isolate is where the problem is. So at base, there's just the body, Rupa. And he uh, defines the body uh, both as something that we act through. So uh, in the the discourse on how to establish mindfulness, he's asking us to be very much aware of our actions, opening doors, etc., etc. And... uh, Then there comes uh, these various sections. Uh, One is contemplation of death and stuff like that, the breath. But the bit that we're interested in is the four great elements. The four great elements, if you remember, are fire, anything to do with temperature. uh, Water, cohesiveness, elasticity, that 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 sort of feeling. Um, Earth element, which is more like pressure, weight, um, that feeling of things being substantial. And uh, movement, air, movement. And what's, what that tells us, or what, what, what it's telling us is that how the mind actually experiences the body, how the mind actually experiences the body at a feeling touch level. See, so in a sense you've got to say, you've got to ask yourself, well okay, uh, there is this body, how do I experience the body? How do I experience the body? See? And it'll always, you can always reduce it down to these, some sort of combination of these qualities. Now, in order to make that clear, you also have to ask, but what is it I of this body I don't experience? I mean, for instance, do you experience yourself as your toenail? Have you, ex- have you ever been your toenail? <laughs> See? So, we're, we're, so we possess toenails, and we can feel them. They're hard and all that sort of thing. And we cut them off, and, we, and there's no grief. We don't have any grief getting rid of... right? And we get our hair cut, or I used to, and there's no grief whatsoever in getting rid of parts of our body that we don't want. But have we ever been a hare? Have we ever actually been a So there's this business of possessing or experiencing something as an object and actually being it. When it comes to your body, what have you been? What have you actually been in the sense of a complete loss of identity in that? Can I suggest? <laughs> it is actually only a feeling. When you've had severe pain, and one example I always give is catching your door, catching your finger in the door. Just for that one moment, you are that pain. You're not the finger, are you? You're the pain. See? Or when you've been really uh, 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 physically joyful, an orgasm, for instance. Dare I say that? So, <laughs> you know, in that one moment when you deliver yourself into your... It's the it's the feeling, isn't it? It's the physical feeling. Or if you put something very lovely and tasty on your mouth and on your tongue, and you get lost in it, just for that one, mmm. You know, kiddies love to do that. You know, they just become ice cream, don't they? But they not become ice cream. They become the feeling that's arising from the tongue. They've not become the tongue. There's more to the tongue than the feeling you're getting from it, huh? I mean, there's the ligaments for a start. You don't feel the ligaments unless you tug at them. So, what we actually, if we if we look at what we experience in the body, you come down to sensation. That's your sensation, and this this is what the Buddha is pointing to when he says that the rupa, uh, the body, as we as we experience it, uh, can always be reduced to these four elements. They become more subtle. uh, For instance, sight. Uh, would be considered more the fire element photons and all that be put down to, to some sort of fire element light, you see um, even smell it seems happens at a subatomic level I can't go into that it Was uh, I think you you know Al-Khalili, uh, what's his name yeah, so he had a couple huh? Jim. Jim. Jim, Jim Al-Khalili <laughs> so he had a couple of programs one was on, the, bio- the subatomic biology of the senses or something and it was quite fascinating that the sense of, sm- the sense of smell is at this level of, uh, of, of subatomic communication between different atoms. That's by the buyer. So, uh, th- but that's not what we experience, is it? We don't experience subatomic. What we experience is a pleasant, a pleasant smell or otherwise. <laughs> you see? So, so there's something, there's some disconnect You see, there's some disconnect between the mind and how it contacts the body and the body itself. There's something, and that that to me uh, is always a, um, telling me anyway, that the body isn't the mind. I mean, even at the cellular level, uh, cells just grow of themselves. The skin, for instance, is constantly replacing itself and 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 all the cells are falling off all the time. You know, I'm shedding masses of, of skin cells all the time and I haven't a clue that's happening. And I never grieve. I've never I've never wept over the loss of a skin cell. <laughs> and I'm not so sure it, uh, it somehow is is part and parcel of the mind. Unless unless you, you believe that the, there's a, there's a sort of a mental energy coming from the mind which which sustains the body. Prana, uh, life force. That sort of thing. but anyway, as I experience my body it's very superficial. It's, you know it's just basically what the mind can pick up from it. Now <clears throat> all, now those what you the, uh, when we experience things like that, let's take an example for instance pain pain is a, always a very simple example. so you've got pain in the knee from your sitting, and you you'll first of all become aware of it as pain as pain, you see. And once you've got uh, equanimous with it, you're okay with it, and you go into the pain, you'll come across different words to describe what it is you're experiencing. So it might be tightness, it might be heat, but it won't be pain. So there's a level of perception uh, where the mind actually perceives sensations before it makes this distinction of whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. Now, as soon as, it, as, soon as the mind does that, then we're into vedana. Okay, then we're into vedana, and so from the body uh, there comes this level of sensations, uh, which we determine to be either pleasant or unpleasant. So I put something, um, put something pleasant on my tongue, and I get pleasant sensations, and I immediately describe it as pleasant. This is important from the point of view of the world we live in, because um, we live in that duality. We always, we're always we always experiencing the world as either pleasant or unpleasant. I mean, there's a whole area of neutrality, which, if we really investigate, you'll see, does actually shade off. So the Buddha makes the first distinction between pleasant and unpleasant, and then he talks about pleasant and neutral and unpleasant. But basically, that's, that's a given uh, duality that we live in the world. So uh, that's part of our now, um, and of course, uh, the way that we uh, look at it is part of the perceptual process. So, perception is that process in the mind which creates memory for us, sort of photocopies, and the photocopy of something grows and and, be, and becomes more um, um, more abstract, uh, more well, not abstract, more, uh, more refined the more we experience um, similar, more, the more we have similar experiences. So, um, say bird, If it, take a bird like bird, you see, most of us will, will have some image in the mind. It might, for one or two of us who are bird watchers, it might be quite specific, you might see a robin, but me, I just see this thing with two wings flopping through the air. So, and it's only, it only concretizes when I see a robin. And then I say, oh, that's a robin. And of course, I've got mental images of robin, photocopies of robin, uh, which allow me to, to remember that. So the whole Sanya perception includes all our memories. And of course, it includes levels of memory, which, in, which are to do with our more abstract thinking. Till we get to this very high level of freedom and democracy and all these sorts of big words, you know. So that's another one of these candors, one of these heaps. They're all little bits and pieces that, that we collect. Uh, the third one, uh, sorry, the, the fourth one now is Sankara. Okay, now Sankara refers to, uh, and this is why he's, he's split it up like this, you see, because he wants to show us, he wants to tell us where the problem lies. So the problem doesn't lie in the body and the way the mind experiences the body. That's not where suffering, the suffering he's talking about arises. He's not talking about, Perceptions, because they happen just naturally to the mind. Some people are better at it than others. You know, we call them clever if, if they've got very good perceptual memories and all that sort of stuff. And then there's feeling, which just arises naturally from the body to the mind. And then there's these sankharas. Right? Now, in sankhara, the crucial ingredient is the will. And what the will does is it creates habits. And the habits are a combination of all your memories, your sanya, and your feelings. But, of course, it has in it these habits um, which are um, uh, conditioned because of past action and, when they arise, are conditioning in the future. So, today, for instance, um, you might have felt a little hungry I don't know, when I, when I fast, I don't, for some reason, I don't feel hungry. It's just me, eh? Does anybody feel actually hungry? Oh, I mean, it's funny, can, the body, my body doesn't react to not eating for a day or two. So anyway, um, you feel uh, hunger, so that's coming from the body, but then there's a habit which attaches itself to it, which is, of course, to go and forage for food. So you open the cupboard and and get out the biscuits. So there's your habit. And and the habit will point you to something which you've always found assuages your sense of hunger. So it might be a little nibble that the body's saying, that the mind is saying, oh, that'd be nice to have. So therefore you seek out uh, the biscuits, you see, and eat some biscuits and that's the end of it. So uh, when when that habit comes up, it comes up with the force of habit, with the force of that of that will that's behind it. And there's a moment there where it hangs in consciousness. And normally speaking, we're not aware enough to see it's hanging there, and we immediately fall into it with an act of will, which is, I'll get the biscuit. Okay? So that's, that, that's how the habits can sort of drag us along. But with our extra special mindfulness, uh, you can see it hanging in the air for long enough for you to reflect upon it and say, now, do I really need a biscuit?" you see? And that way you, uh, you refuse to join in that energy that's coming up, you see? You know, whiskeys. <laughs> and, and as you're allowing that energy to come up, and you're not actually reinforcing it, it eventually exhausts itself. And in that way, the sankhara is, that habit is being undermined very slowly, you see? So the first time might be difficult to resist the biscuit, but the second time is just that little bit easier. But it takes that level of mindfulness. Now, when the Sankaras come up, of course, uh, they come up as what we would call an emotion. It always has a heart, a heart thing to it. So uh, something might be, uh, oh, I don't know, I don't, um, I'm, I'm a, f- a fear so fear would be a sankara. So I'm, I'm afraid of walking in the rain in case I catch a cold. See, so, so every time it rains, you get this fear of walking in the rain in case you catch a cold. And so you never go out. It stops you going out. And then to break that fear, you have to get, get your clothes on and walk out in the rain and prove that you don't catch a cold. So uh, this, this uh, the, all these emotions that we talk about, fear, uh, happiness, excitement... Uh, love, joy, the whole gamut of what we would call our emotional life belongs to this section of Sankara and they they are being created by us through our acts of will and they can be uncreated by simply not joining in anymore and then they atrophy, they just die away now when these emotions, when these mental states enter into the body we get feelings, so you can feel your love, you can feel the fear. And at that point, in the effect on the body, they become Vedana, they become just sensations in the body, which we would refer to them more as feelings, feelings in the body. So, if our, if our emotional states were just simply mental, they'd be much more refined You may, in your meditation, sometimes when you're looking at an emotion in you, uh, it may, you know, if you really go into it, it may just separate out for you a little bit, where you can begin to see that the emotion coming from the mind, from the mind base, the heart base, is not so rough as what's being mirrored back to it through the body. So the body acts as a sort of um, sounding chamber, so that uh, your fear really feels Fearful in the body, and it begins to shake and all that sort of stuff. And and your love fills your body with pleasant feelings, happiness, pleasant feelings. And so it affects all your autonomic system, your heartbeat and and, and everything else. I mean, we know that, for instance, if you feel depressed, it it pushes down onto the is it the thymus in the middle of your chest? Thymus, correct? Yes, no, yes, no, mm, miserable lot. <laughs> I think it's, it's it's not. I believe it's not a full gland, but anyway, what it does is it um, it it has it, it's an organizer. Or it has some of it has some major effect on your immune system. So when you feel depressed, when you feel down, you're, you're actually affecting your immune system, and there's and there's a greater possibility of, of falling ill. So the connection between the body and mind is intimate. There's no doubt about that, but. In, in, in the Buddhist understanding, they are two separate systems. How they, how they affect each other, he doesn't go into. In fact, I've been reading now a very an old classic called An Experiment in Mindfulness, which was written in the 50s. Can you imagine that? A book called An Experiment in Mindfulness. We think it's this new thing. But in fact, uh, Rear Admiral Shattuck, uh, just after the Second World War, Went to the Mahasi Centre and practiced there, and it's uh, it's an interesting book because it's one of these very early ex- uh, experiences before it was known in the West. Boy, anybody was writing about it or understanding it, and so um, he gets uh, he gets quite involved in this whole concept of time and stuff. <laughs> but at least he he does the practice, and he it's funny because he brought back a lot of my memories about Burma, the noise, the dogs, and. <laughs> Just the yeah so uh and he um uh in in that book that mindfulness um he's he, he he actually gets in touch with feelings sensations um i've lost my train of thought there, what was i gonna, what was i talking about what was I, what was i going with that huh eh? A book, a word, uh, that's right. Yeah, the Buddha didn't uh, the body and mind. Didn't say ah, that. that's right. Thank you very much. Thank you, oh. Maz. Heaven help! What would I do without somebody <laughs> without somebody else's memory? Um, he, uh, in the book he asks the Mahasi the Mahasi himself. You know, like what what connection is there between the body and mind? And the Mahasi says the Buddha didn't talk about it. He doesn't go into it, which I find fascinating, and and I would want to. Um, to find that substantiated somewhere, some other writers. Uh, <clears throat> but um, it would make sense to me uh, if I understand the Buddha as only being concerned with how to bring uh, suffering to an end. Because suffering in the body is not, is not the question here. You know, Pain in the body is not the question, but this whole process of suffering. So... Um, When we talk about that that candor, that aggregator feeling, it is what the body feels, what we feel in the body, the feelings in feelings, as uh, the Buddha would make us, you know, he wants us to get really into a feeling, is both coming up from the body as pain or pleasure and coming into the body from the mind as, as pleasant or unpleasant emotional states, felt as that. And then, of course, it's the higher faculties of the mind that tell us it's fear or something else. But it has an immediate effect on, on this, on, on the mind as it, as it touches the body. And that's, that's the Vedana. So there you have your first four <clears throat> aggregates. And it, remember, it's a cross-section. At any one given time, they're all active. There's the body. There are some feelings in the body, even now. It might just be the feeling of your hands on, on, on your lap or whatever. There is some uh, form of perception going on. <clears throat> at this point, you're obviously uh, heavily uh, concentrated on what I'm saying. You see? <laughs> uh, and then there's these sankharas, which is your emotional state at this, at this point. Uh, no doubt keen interest and joy. And, uh, and then, of course, there's the final one, which is consciousness. Now this, um, this really is quite a, um, something which I think is quite confusing in Buddhism, and I can only give you my understanding, because other people will try, will, will express it, will, will have different ideas, but to me consciousness is only a screen, it's a, a screen upon which whatever is happening now appears, and it's a multi-dimensional screen, much like a monitor, except, you know, at a slightly more subtle level, you might say. So on this screen, which is multidimensional, you not only get what your eyes are giving you and your ears and your sense bases, but what the mind is offering you. Your feelings, your emotions, your thought patterns are all there right on this screen. Why do I call it a screen? Because when you're in the state of the observer, the feeler, the one who knows, what is it you're looking at? What is it you're feeling? And where is it? So the only, the only word I've got which expresses that which holds something long enough for it to be known is a screen, consciousness. And that's how I define consciousness. Now the word consciousness has a thousand and one definition depending on which academic or, 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 or scholar, Buddhist scholar or, or whatever wants to, wants to describe it as. But that for me is what the candor of consciousness is. And it knows, so consciousness is the one that is what's holding your thoughts. Uh, at the moment that I'm speaking, it, it's it's being held in consciousness and being expressed through the body, as, you know, with these funny sounds. Yeah. If I was if I were talking a language you wouldn't understand, they would just be funny sounds. But because you understand them, that we call it a language. So. This, uh, this screen, you see, is what we're looking at when we're in a state of, the, of being the observer within ourselves. So when you're, when you're sitting there uh, in, and of course, your deep, profound state of samadhi, and you can feel a bit of pain coming up on your knee, where's that appearing? You're aware of it. See? If you're aware of something, you can't be it. In the same way that I was talking about trapping your finger in a door. When you trap your finger in a door, just for that one singular moment, you and the pain are one. There's not, there's not somebody saying, oh, my, my finger's hurting. That is just pain. <laughs> See, that's what I mean by, that's identity. That's what we mean by identity. If you're not identifying in that sense, you're possessing it. It's become an object. So as soon as I jump out of that identity of the excruciating pain... I can, the, the pain now is in my finger and I'm aware of it somewhere in my head. It's become an object. See? So that's your that distinction between an identity and a possession. So um, this screen is what everything is appearing on. Okay? And within that screen, there is also the mirroring back to that which knows. So there's something that's pulled itself out of that screen. There's something that has objectified itself. It doesn't happen to everybody. For some people, when they experience that for the first time in meditation, it becomes a real shock. Because although they have in their lives talked about, I've got this terrible pain in my back or I've got a headache, they've never actually been in that internal position of objectifying it as an object so distinctly and for some it comes as quite a shock you know and the shock is of course that they realise that that there's something in, in those five candas that we've talked about in those five candas which is making, which is turning the five candas into an object to be observed now that process of um, of disidentifying with that screen is the process of liberating ourselves from the identity of being a human being, which the five candors describes. So every time you're in a in a position of the observer, you're actually saying to yourself, "I'm not that," right? And that process of uh, of um, of abstracting ourselves, uprooting ourselves from that identity is. The liberation, so that when we're in a state of the observer, and there is pain in the knee, and we're absolutely acranimus uh, with it, and we're observing it as an object, you're in a nibanic state because there's no desire there. That is a nirvanic state. So when you're in that state, and it's very clear to you, and especially especially when everything else is quite calm and peaceful, after that experience, you see, uh, even within a sitting, but uh, but. Even more so at the end of a sitting. Just ask yourself, what was that Noah made of? What 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 did, what constitutes the Noah? See? Now the uh, and finally, just to sort of end off the actual feeling of a Noah. Uh, sorry, the Noah. If when when you are the Noah, um, recognise that there's some sort of concept there. There's some sort of subtle concept of being the knower. But there's also, if you if you go, if you if you as it were get closer to it, there's also a feeling content, and that's your sense of presence, your sense of being here. All right? Now, because you're aware of that, you can't be it either. But somehow The screen, that mirroring screen, is mirroring back to the knower its own presence. See? And it's by uh, only in moments where, you know, everything's very calm and peaceful, which is, of course, the vast majority of your meditation. When you're calm and peaceful... just, just draw your attention to that feeling of presence, not to the concept, because then you start getting a sort of silly mirror image. But just the feeling of being present. Okay. So, um, this is a wonder. I, I was going. To, I was. I was hoping for questions about love and and all that sort of stuff being Christmas and... <laughs> 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 but at least this is... Uh, we, can, we can turn this by saying that this whole process that we're going through and this, these distinctions we're making, and making them clear to ourselves in our city, is a process of self-love. It's a process of beginning to understand ourselves as we really are, how we create suffering for ourselves, how we liberate ourselves from suffering. And in that process... I think one of the disappointments is that you realize you can 't do it for somebody else that's it we 're all in this little bubble of consciousness we 're all in our own encased in our own little bubble of consciousness. We can be of help to others like the Buddha uh, you know he can point where it is, he can do this, but he can 't liberate us and that must and that's that has to be a, a constant uh, feeling of uh, what should we say disappointment it's like a doctor who sees your... Who sees the illness you've got but can't cure you you know what I mean? Kn- knows all about it knows what but they they just cannot cure and they just see you withering away and, and dying in horror so <laughs> so it's the same uh, when I think the Buddha saw people who weren't who weren't taking the Dharma and he must have felt I think some little bit of uh, sorrow about that but um, as long as we, as long as we know that that our power to liberate is only within ourselves, uh, and to accept that limitation, then of course we don't start trying to manipulate others, force them, try to convert them, all that sort of stuff. And of course, what always impresses other people is not you trying to convert them, but you as you are, and people are attracted to people who are, who you know, who obviously manifest some sort of. Uh, you know, personal or spiritual development, whatever it might be. At it's most crass, of course, it's pop stars. Well, I wouldn't want to speak too badly about pop stars. <laughs> so, it's who you're attracted to, which uh, sometimes mirrors back to you where you are, you know, in your practice. Hmm. So, um, I hope that uh, clarifies that specific question about Vaden that came up uh, during... The meeting we had. So Vedana is the Buddha's um, uh, pointing to what we experience in the body. What we would normally call sensations, feelings. Sensations, feelings. And it can either come up from the body itself as pain or pleasure. Or down into the body from the mind as a felt emotional state. A felt mental state. I can only hope my words have been of some assistance. May you, by your uh, severe investigation of the human condition, liberate yourself from all suffering sooner rather than later, in fact, before New Year. (laughs) Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org. Donate.